Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute, both all of you who are here at the Hayek Auditorium and those of you joining us online or even on Twitter. So we're tweeting today's event. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Now, CEF, the Center for Educational Freedom, is not an academic center as like the ones you're about to hear about. Uh, but certainly it's a center where great academic work and all sorts of other terrific work <laughs> is done. Uh, today we will be talking about academic centers that are attempting to infuse intellectual diversity in our sometimes kind of intellectually monolithic colleges and universities by bringing conservative libertarian ideas into the greater campus discussion. Uh, some of these centers, as you'll hear, are physically on campus, some are outside of campus, but all are working, often through kind of non-traditional channels, at least when it comes to higher education, <clears throat> to bring ideas to students that really uh, all students should probably at least be familiar with. Uh, the jumping off point for our discussion is this report, Renewal in the University, How Academic Centers Restore the Spirit of Inquiry. There were copies outside, I believe, as you came in, uh, so I hope you grabbed one of those. Uh, it's from the John William Pope Center for Higher Education Research. Uh, leading us off will be the author and then three terrific uh, panelists, including the president of the Cato Institute, whom I highly encourage you to give the warmest round of applause for <laughs> obvious reasons. Um, uh, so let me go ahead and introduce our panelists in order they will speak. Uh, afterwards, I'm going to ask a question or two as the moderator. Then I'm going to hand it over to you, the audience, as well as to anybody on Twitter who might like to tweet a question or two. Um, so the author of the report is Jay Shallon. Uh, Jay joined the Pope Center in August 2007. He researches and writes about higher education issues, primarily in North Carolina, and oversees the center's website. A Philadelphia native, Shallon began working as a freelance journalist for the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey in 1994. He's also written for several other papers in New Jersey and in Delaware. In 1998, he returned to school to complete his education, graduating from Richard Stockton College in New Jersey with a BS in computer science in 2001. After graduation, he was employed as a software engineer for Computer Sciences Corporation. Uh, he received an MA in economics from the University of Delaware in 2008. On my far right is John A. Allison. Uh, John Allison is the president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Uh, prior, prior to joining Cato, he was the chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, the 10th largest financial services holding company headquartered in the United States. During his tenure as CEO, uh, BB&T grew from $4.5 billion to $152 billion in assets. He was recognized by the Harvard Business Review as one of the top 100 most successful CEOs in the world over the last decade. Uh, he received the Corning Award for Distinguished Leadership. He's been inducted in the North Carolina Business Hall of Fame and received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Banker. He is the author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why Pure Capitalism is the World Economy's Only Hope, and The Leadership Crisis, the Free Market Cure, Why the Future of Business Depends on the Return to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. In addition, he's a former distinguished professor of practice at Wake Forest University School of Business, serves on the board of visitors at the business schools at Wake Forest, Duke, and UNC Chapel Hill. He's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, received his master's degree in management from Duke University, and is hence very conflicted, uh, and is also a graduate of the Stonier Graduate School of Banking, Mr. Allison's recipient of six honorary doctorate degrees. Um, 
And to my immediate right is C. Bradley Thompson. He is the BB&T Research Professor at Clemson University, the Executive Director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. He's also been a visiting fellow at Princeton and Harvard Universities and at the University of London. Uh, Professor Thompson is the author of Neoconservatism, an Obituary for an Idea, and the prize-winning book John Adams and the Spirit of Liberty. He's also edited the revolutionary writings of John Adams, anti-slavery political writings, 1833 to 1860, a reader, and co-edited Freedom and School Choice in American Education, was associated with a four-volume Encyclopedia of the Enlightenment. His current book project is on the ideological origins of American constitutionalism. He's an occasional writer for the Times Literary Supplement of London, has lectured around the country on education reform and the American Revolution, as op-eds have appeared in scores of newspapers around the country and abroad. Dr. Thompson's lectures on the political thought of John Adams have twice appeared on C-SPAN television. Uh, finally, to last but not least, certainly, to my far left is Christopher Hill. Uh, uh, Chris Hill earned his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in 2008 and has advanced degrees in both medieval and modern European history. He's taught at the University of Texas and Hamilton College, where he received the Sidney Wurtzmer Award. Did I say that right? As far as I know. Oh, very good. Uh, for excellence uh, in teaching in 2010. A legal historian by training, he's particularly interested in the relationship between religion and law during the high Middle Ages and the impact the relationship had on the idea of individual liberty and developing English common law. An ardent critic of political orthodoxy in academe, he wrote, while graduate student, a novel satirizing political correctness on a fictional college campus. The book, Virtual Morality, won the Editor's Book Award from Pushcart Press in the year 2000. His reviews have appeared in the Wall Street Journal. He's currently researching the history of the concept of liberty as a Buckwind Fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute. He and his wife, Stephanie, live with their three children in Waterville, New York. And with that, Jay, I turn it over to you. All right, thank you, Neil. Um, when I started this project in the fall of 2013, I was sort of interested in it in the usual way that I'm interested in things that I write about. Um, over the course of the next year and a half, uh, I've become a very zealous advocate for them. I think they're uh, an amazing innovation. And uh, I'm about to wax philosophical here rather than go into a description of the centers, and I'm not a trained philosopher, and I warn you, uh, I just wanted to warn you that, and uh, I hope you'll indulge me, and I won't take very long. Uh, the more I think about these centers, it's kind of like peeling back an onion, and the more layers I peel back, I realize how valuable it is. So um, I just want to get that across to you. It's been 27 years since the publication of Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, in which he describes a, a gradual takeover of academia by um, the relativist philosophy. Um, the trends that he described have only intensified since then. And there's also another kind of family of philosophies coming from a different direction that are also making inroads. And I would say it's something, something along the lines of a belief that science can solve all problems without resorting to values and morality. Now, relativism, which is the one that usually makes for the wonderful, sarcastic headlines in conservative blogs, has a lot of different flavors. Um, you can call it structuralism, postmodernism, new historicism, critical theory, 
and some other things like that. But they all sort of reject belief in a mind-independent reality. Instead, our reality is a function of our language or of structures that we create in our mind that help us interact with the world. And in these views, the language or structures or whatever have been manipulated over time by the powerful to maintain their power. The point of scholarship in many of these beliefs is to expose the language and structures that are used to oppress um, and the object is to alter them in order to produce a more socially just and egalitarian world. In them, the aim of scholarship is politics, not objective knowledge. At the other end of the spectrum, the scientism school also has a lot of different flavors that all reject values for just facts. And there's a great arrogance in this way of thinking in it, that it believes every human matter can be measured and quantified and reduced to a series of equations. All we have to do is adjust a variable or two in the model, and we will all be universally healthy, happy, and prosperous with a Prius in every garage and a double latte in every cup. Both of these philosophies have made great inroads into academia and will continue to do so for a while. But in the middle is a way of thinking that most intelligent people without PhDs possessed of ordinary common sense intuitively gravitate to. And it is partially a belief in a mind-independent objectivity or mind-independent reality. And, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily one that can be proven beyond all doubt to the satisfaction of all philosophers. But it works in our everyday lives. At the same time, uh, this view also asserts that human problems require value judgments. For instance, we generally shy away from thinning the herd to improve the human species because we intrinsically value human life. Okay, and this way of thinking in between these two utopian extremes is what these privately funded academic centers in my report are defending, preserving, and reintroducing on American campuses. Um, uh, it is not a minor matter, and uh, I see them as a great hope for the intellectual future of the country. I think of things like um, at uh, Duke University, Bruce Caldwell's Center for the History of Poli Political Economy, in which he told me that um, the historical perspective of economics is in sharp decline, that applied economics and various mathematical approaches are pushing it off campus. And at the same time, I think of how students in the humanities and social sciences often don't learn any real economics. They're instead taught a one-sided uh, pseudo-economics taught by English or sociology professors. <clears throat> that starts with and ends with value judgments, such as a preference for equality over everything else. Um, I also think of a former English professor at UNC Chapel Hill who is still too intimidated to um, have his name exposed because he's worried about the uh, relativists in his former department. 
um, he explained to me how great texts, the way of reading great texts now in vogue consists of analyzing them according to today's politics um, instead of according to the actual meaning the authors intended. Um, Harvey Mansfield, the celebrated political scientist at Harvard, told me how the study of political methods, such as how to do a survey and how to interpret them, is pushing the study of great political ideas out of existence. I think of uh, how the centers emphasize the reading. I think of how the centers do exactly that. They emphasize the reading of the great texts of politics and economics according to how the authors meant them to be read. Um, So students steeped in quantitative scientific approaches can be exposed to a qualitative thought uh, that tells a deeper story than just the numbers, and how humanities students who have bought into theories of socially just egalitarianism are exposed to economics from a historical approach that teaches them that their utopian schemes have generally impoverished people and caused mass injustices. So we're not talking about political centers here. We're talking about intellectual centers. If some people don't like them, it's because they threaten the politicization of the campus and reject the infallibility of intellectuals. It is sad that they're so necessary. It is wonderful that they are exploding in number. Other attempts to do what they are doing have failed, but they are exceeding beyond expectations. Um, In a case like um, Chris's Alexander Hamilton Institute, they are showing how one or two determined faculty can keep crucial knowledge from disappearing from a campus no matter how much opposition is thrown at them. Every once in a while, a concept comes along that changes the game, and I believe that these centers are doing just that. And I will shut up now and turn it over to the people who are actually doing important things rather than just writing about them. Thank you. Tom, you want to tell us a bit about your role, what it's been at these centers? Sure. Uh, this really goes back to my uh, tenure as CEO of BB&T, late 1990s. Um, we were doing an analysis of our charitable giving. Uh, banks, financial institutions typically support education throughout our communities. It's kind of a long time tradition. And we started examining uh, the results we were getting from some of the activities we were supporting. And then we found out we were actually supporting programs that really weren't uh, good for free markets and we didn't think they were good for society in general. So we kind of st- stood back and asked ourselves what was kind of the pivotal question that we as an institution were interested in and, and how might that be approached in the academic community. And you know, in looking at uh, economics, what our research showed is that most people generally viewed capitalism, free markets, as economically successful. But a very large percentage of people viewed capitalism, free markets, as at best Uh, amoral, in many cases, immoral. So we really went back to kind of a fundamental question, how can an immoral system produce a better outcome? Uh, We didn't believe that that was possible, but uh, that was the perception that the vast majority of people had. 
So we, in that context, what we started with is to challenge the academic community to pursue the issue of the morality of capitalism. Is this a moral system? Is it not? Is there a correlation between morality and economic outcomes? Or can bad systems produce good results? Um, we started out trying to get into philosophy departments. We ended up, uh, over a period of time, getting into about five philosophy departments. But philosophy departments really already knew the answer to that question, which was that a capitalism was bad, so they didn't need to explore it any further. So uh, <laughs> uh, we ended up mostly in economics and business schools. Um, we ended up starting 62 programs on the morality of capitalism. We challenged the programs to be academically credible, to be balanced. Uh, we weren't worried about winning the arguments if our side was hurt. We thought the challenge in the academic community was students had never heard what I would define as many of the great ideas of Western civilization. They never had heard those, those concepts. And in, in business schools, which may be quasi-pro-markets, it's basically uh, a, a technical education. It's nothing, there's nothing philosophical. And so students graduate from top-notch business schools and don't know whether free markets or capitalism is a good system from an ethical perspective. They know the techniques of marketing, the techniques of finance. And we thought that was a really big hole uh, in, in the curriculum. Um, as we developed the programs, we started seeking out professors that shared these ideas and wanted to have more flexibility to present the ideas to students. And we found that if we could find a tenured faculty member that was respected as a good academic in his academic community, that the universities would often allow that professor to develop a program <clears throat> that we, would, we, we could support. We had some goals that we wanted achieved. We wanted to have a course on the morality of capitalism. I'm a big student of Ayn Rand, so we encouraged people to read Atlas Shrug in the programs. But we wanted them to read Karl Marx also. In fact, I think Karl Marx is one of the greatest arguments for capitalism if you ever read Marx. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> um, we wanted, you know, we encouraged uh, programs where we had debates, where we had speakers come in. And then the professors designed a lot of the rest of the programs. Um, over time, the last year I was at BB&T, we had about 25,000 students that were going through these programs annually. Um, I personally received emails and letters and, and notes from thousands of students saying that these were very important ideas that they'd never heard before and their whole, and these were seniors, in many cases top uh, flight students in their whole uh, college career, and the ideas had changed their minds about some very important things. That they were, and, we, early on, we asked uh, that uh, we be shared the students' evaluation of the courses. And consistently, the students gave these courses the best rankings of any course they, you know, they had taken at the university uh, and, and because they were actually academic debates. They weren't technical and they weren't propaganda. It was a real debate and introducing ideas that they had never heard that they found powerful and persuasive uh, in that regard. Uh, so uh, we've now, we've developed a network. There are professors that attend uh, a, a program that Brad uh, conducts at Clemson to try to help develop uh, these ideas further and encourage more participation by students uh, in the process. And it's interesting because um, 
the professors are very outnumbered, right, on college campuses, particularly if you get outside of the business school and you get outside of the economics department. And yet, these ideas are very impactful because they're better ideas. And better ideas often win the day when they're heard. And I think the resistance to a lot of these programs is that, that a lot of people that disagree with free markets, free, disagree with capitalism, literally don't want the students to hear these ideas because they're scared of them. Because they know when they're presented objectively, we typically win. Great. Uh, now we get to the two people who are going through the arduous work of running these centers, and I think you're going to get two very different stories about how the, this has gone for them, though I think from what I can tell, both are so far heading in a good direction. So, Brad, you Great. Start? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Neil. The Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism was founded in 2005 with a startup grant from John and BB&T, and our mission, very simply, is to explore the moral foundations of capitalism. Uh, and we think this is the most important task. Uh, you all know that there are scores of think tanks uh, at universities and, and private uh, think tanks around the country that uh, defend capitalism and free markets uh, on economic grounds, on the grounds that capitalism is good because it works, because it's the most productive and efficient economic system. Uh, ever devised by man. Um, and that's all well and good. The problem, of course, is that Karl Marx understood that point and made it very, uh, very clearly as well uh, in the Capitalist Manifesto. The problem with capitalism from Marx's perspective, however, is that it's immoral and unjust. And for the last 150 years, Marx and his descendants have captured and held the moral high ground. Now, for let's say the last 60 years, uh, the defenders of free markets have captured and held the economic high ground. But in any battle between morality and economics, morality over time always wins, which precisely, I think, uh, describes why we've been going down the road to serfdom uh, for a very long time, uh, despite um, times uh, in our recent history, for instance, when, when Republicans uh, have controlled both uh, houses of Congress, uh, the Supreme Court, and, uh, and the executive office. So the Clemson Institute and the other programs connected uh, and funded by BB&T uh, are an attempt to, as I said, to retake that moral high ground. So what do we do to accomplish our mission? Um, we do many of the standard things that a lot of similar think tanks do. We have a lecture series throughout the course of the year. Every year we run two conferences, uh, one where we bring in uh, about 60 or 70 college, top-flight college students from around the United States for a three-day conference on the moral foundations of capitalism. We also, as John mentioned, have a two-day conference for the so-called BB&T professors um, on the same theme on the moral foundations of capitalism. Uh, when I first went to Clemson, I was the Clemson Institute, in effect. And so wherever I was on campus, when I was you know, uh, walking across campus or uh, standing in a classroom, that's where the Clemson Institute was. Over the course of these last 10 years, though, we've grown, we've expanded, uh, and I now have five or six pe people, staff and, and faculty, connected with the Institute. We teach a lot of classes. Uh, my faculty and I, we teach 14 to 16 classes a year. Uh, in the political science, history, and economics departments at Clemson, and in the Honors College, and in the Great Books program. We also have a, a, a visiting scholar program called the Hayek Visiting Scholar uh, Program, and then we also have various uh, student um, 
uh, organizations that that we uh, that we run. We have a reading group, for instance. Uh, uh, every Friday afternoon for the last ten years, uh, you will have found me at Clemson with a group of students reading Atlas Shrugged. Uh, not the same students for ten years, mind <laughs> you, but uh, they rotate in and out. Uh, and I'm really pleased and delighted to be able to announce, uh, for the first time at least here in Washington, that the Clemson Institute is about to launch what I believe, uh, and I really believe it, is the most important, the most innovative, and indeed even revolutionary academic program uh, in the United States for the last 60 years or so. It's called the Lyceum Scholars Program. And the Lyceum Scholars Program is a scholarship program where we'll give uh, 10 incoming freshmen every year uh, a scholarship renewable over four years. And this, this cohort of 10 students in return for the scholarship will be required to take eight courses together as a group over the course of their uh, four years at Clemson. And the courses uh, uh, range from uh, various political philosophy courses. They have to take a course called Wisdom of the Ancients, which is a course in ancient Greek and Roman moral thought. They do a course on the American founding. Um, they do a course on the political theory of capitalism, for instance. And then the, there'll be a capstone course on what we call Wisdom of the Moderns, a course in modern uh, moral thought. Uh, what's really, I think, particularly unique about this program is that each student will be assigned what we're calling a Socratic tutor, which will be one of the faculty members who teaches uh, in the program. And these Socratic tutors will help the students translate the theory of their classes into practical real life. And more particularly, what we're trying to do is restore a long-lost tradition in American uh, education going back to before the Civil War, where at every Ivy League college the, uh, in America, the president of that college taught a senior capstone course in moral theory with the idea of developing the moral character uh, of each and every one of these students. We want our students to think seriously and deeply, maybe for the, for the first time in their lives, about their moral character, because we believe fundamentally that there is a connection between a free society and moral character. Uh, let me just take a, just another minute or two, if I can, and just give you a very quick uh, history of the early uh, founding of the Clemson Institute. As I said, we were founded in 2005, um, and uh, when I first went to Clemson, when I, uh, when I took this uh, job, uh, I was a tenured full professor at another university, and I gave up tenure um, and this full professorship to take an untenured, non-tenured job at Clemson uh, on, a, on a, I'm not sure if it's a short-term or a long-term contract. In the context of tenure, it was a very short-term contract. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, my wife insists that I take the plunge, uh, and, uh, and I did. Uh, and when I got there, it was just called the Clemson Capitalism Initiative. Uh, in fact, it had no form. So I'd just given up tenure to take a job uh, at an institution or a program that had no official standing on campus. Um, and it was really just a budget line. And this so-called Clemson Capital Initiative um, had, there was, there was nothing. I mean, there was no <laughs> office space. There was nothing. And my first job was to usher this initiative through the approval process at the university. 
uh, and which meant that it had to be approved by a faculty committee, an administrative committee, and ultimately by the University Board of Trustees. And my job for the first four months when I was there was to just do it the old-fashioned way, pound the pavement, go from door to door introducing myself to faculty and administrators, telling them uh, what we were planning and hoping to do. Um, and I made two points very clear uh, to these faculty and administrators. Point one was we were not going to be shunted to some dark corner of the university and treated as second-class citizens. We insisted that we were going to be uh, an integral part of the university. And secondly, I made it very clear to them that we were not going to be some stale, um, uh, ideologically partisan outfit, but rather we were going to, um, we were going to encourage uh, a marketplace of ideas at, at the university and that for all of our events, we would invite uh, a spectrum of ideological views to, to, all of our, to participate in all of our events, which we have done. And the great news is, of course, that Clemson University uh, has turned out to be a remarkably supportive home uh, for the Clemson Institute, uh, which I'm sorry to say, simply given who and what we are, could not exist at Harvard University. Oh, wait, there is actually an institute for <laughs> the study of capitalism at Harvard, but it's run by Marxists. Uh, so... The good news is Clemson, as I said, has proved to be a remarkably supportive place from the janitorial staff to the faculty to the administrators all the way up to the Board of Trustees. And in fact, as it turns out, we were remarkably approved unanimously at all levels by the faculty committee, by the administrative committee, and by the University uh, Board of Trustees. And uh, it is, I think, in many ways uh, a remarkable thing and... Um, maybe less a credit to what we've done and more of a credit to what a great place Clemson University is. All right. Well, before I send it to Chris, I just uh, thought I should say it did take me about 10 years to read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> very big book. Uh, but that's actually only half the average time it takes an undergraduate to graduate these days. <laughs> um, and, and now, unfortunately, I mean, it's great. To, we're going to hear from Chris Hill, but... Uh, when you mentioned shunted to dark corners, uh, it reminded me of <laughs> your experience. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I work with an organization called the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization, which is in Clinton, New York, which coincidentally is also the home of Hamilton College, which is a, an outstanding liberal arts college, very old outstanding liberal arts college. And... Uh, the genesis of the Alexander Hamilton Institute actually goes all the way back really to the union of two different schools, Hamilton College and uh, Kirkland College. Hamilton College was a much older uh, college. Uh, it was fairly conservative as colleges go with a fairly conservative faculty as colleges go. And uh, Kirkland College was, uh, Hamilton College was all men, and there was a women's college that was begun in the 1960s, basically across the street from Hamilton College. And the two existed simultaneously for about 15 years, and then uh, there were moves made to try and make the two colleges, bring the two colleges together as one co-ed organization. And I believe that there was some animosity among the Kirkland faculty about the way that they were brought in. But the, the faculties were very, very different. Uh, Kirkland's faculty was predominantly left of center. Hamilton's fac faculty, I don't, I don't know where I would place them, but I would not say that about them. 
and understand that Hamilton too had a tradition of producing people who were headed for Wall Street. So we had a lot of alumni who were uh, reasonably well-heeled who had been working in finance and who were essentially conservative in their political outlook and certainly in their economic outlook. So the Kirkland College began, once it came under Hamilton, part of the money that had run Kirkland College became part of something known as the Kirkland Endowment, which continues to this day. And the Kirkland Endowment seemed over the course of the 1990s to becoming more and more left of center in the sorts of people who they were bringing to the, to the college and the sorts of things that they were funding. Until this sort of hit an acme in the early 2000s when right one after another they brought a woman by the name of Susan Rosenberg who had been a recently paroled member of the Weather Underground who was brought to the college to teach uh, memoir writing or some such thing. Uh, and then immediately after that, there was a bit of, a, of an uproar over this, certainly among the alumni, um, who give quite a bit of money. Hamilton is a, is a rich school. Uh, there was a bit of an uproar about this. And then right afterwards, the Kirkland Endowment decided to bring in a man by the name of Ward Churchill, who had recently made some enormously disparaging comments about uh, the people who worked in the World Trade Center right in the aftermath of uh, 9-11. So that one... That incident particularly was picked up by the national press. Bill O'Reilly talked about it at length. It, was, it, it became quite a cause until eventually the college decided they were, not going, they were going to disinvite Ward Churchill. And then that sort of, that, that went away. But in the aftermath of this, some alumni decided that they would like to try and fund a kind of counterweight organization to the Kirkland Endowment, which they were going to call the Alexander Hamilton Center. And they had a couple of faculty members who were interested in doing this. They were conservatives. Uh, especially a, a man by the name of Bob Paquette in my department in history. And uh, they envisioned uh, a sort of on-campus center similar to others that existed where they would bring conservative or at least economically conservative libertarian, fill in whatever adjective, sorts of speakers and produce uh, uh, perhaps endow a chair or two. You know, there were a bunch of different ideas about what the center might do. What was, what was surprising was the amount of money that they had for this, which was about $4 million uh, among a couple of different heavy hitter donators, don donators, which is a big chunk of change. The administration was pleased to do this. The president had an agreement with the, the donors for the Alexander Hamilton Center, and everything seemed to be falling into place until the faculty found out about it and decided that they did not want to allow this to go forward unless the faculty had control over who was going to be on the board of the Alexander Hamilton Center and ultimately be able to make the decisions about what the Alexander Hamilton Center was going to do. Well, the donors looked at this and said, we don't really know whether we want to allow our money to be used in this way. And they dug in their heels about it, which led to a faculty meeting at which I was at this meeting. It was in 2006, I believe. Um, Approximately 80 faculty out of 150 or so were present. It was a big meeting. I mean, nobody comes to faculty meetings. If you guys are in academia, you understand the problem here. Everybody, it seemed, was at this meeting. And the vote was somewhere in the neighborhood of, 80, of uh, 70 to 10 uh, in favor of canning the organization. So that was that. They torpedoed it, basically, because the donors wouldn't give the money under the conditions that the faculty insisted on. But they did not reckon on Bob Paquette, um, who was this dynamo in the history department. And he began suggesting that perhaps they could take this off campus, which is eventually what happened. With somewhat less money, we were able to buy, our, our donors put together a corporation, 
and made the Alexander Hamilton uh, Institute now a 501c3 type organization that could take you know, charitable donations. And we bought uh, this, oh, sorry, we bought a, a building in Clinton, which is just this fantastic old inn, historic building, which had been a bed and breakfast that was in receivership or something at the moment that they, that they went looking. And so we're in the middle of, of downtown Clinton, population 75, but we have this great building and we have, uh, we have like seven guest rooms in it and we have a couple of kitchens and three bars. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to be centered out of when so many of these, of these uh, organizations are in some faculty member's office. I mean, we're, we're high steppers, you know, it's, it's quite nice. Um, what we do with uh, the money that we have, and again, we solicit donations, what we do with the money that we have is fund a group of undergraduate fellows to come down to the AHI, to our facility, and sometimes do things on campus as well through the undergraduate fellows. Uh, we bring in speakers on a variety of different topics. And one of the things that, uh, that was mentioned earlier about trying to be scrupulously nonpartisan, we really are. I mean, clearly we're interested in presenting a more <clears throat> friendly uh, uh, take on Western civilization, but we're by no means ideologues, right? And the people who we bring in and have sitting on our board are people like Mark Elias, who's the Democratic National Committee's go-to lawyer. Uh, he's a, an election law guy, happens to be a, an alumni of Hamilton College, and really likes Bob Paquette, but they disagree about everything, including the meaning of the word the. I mean, they are as, they are as far apart as you can possibly imagine. And we have a number of people like this on our board. So we fund the undergraduate fellows. We have a couple of undergraduate initiatives. We have uh, uh, the Christopher Dawson Society for uh, students who are interested in uh, the discussion of faith and reason. Um, we have the Edmund Burke Society. We run reading groups through the college, actually, under the heading of kind of independent studies through our professors, um, where we'll do like cover-to-cover -cover readings of Montesquieu or Burke or Hume. Um, Hayek is another one, obviously, that we haven't done Atlas Shrugged yet, but I'm sure we can probably work some, something out. Um, we also host colloquia every year on different uh, topics in the spring, usually at a, at a uh, resort near, nearby to where we are called the Turning Stone we have maybe 10 or 15 speakers come in and sit and discuss a particular topic. Uh, in the past, our discussions have been on things like the direction of modern warfare, where we're heading in this direction, the West against the rest, as, uh, as opposed to the rest of the world, new strategic challenges that we face. Um, natural law is another subject. This year, it's gonna be on entrepreneurship, uh, trying to bring back a sense of entrepreneurship on college campuses and how this could possibly be done. Um, we, we fund a bunch of different things. Uh, and we also work with other kindred organizations. We have some, uh, we have a friendly relationship with a similar organization that we've been helping to promote uh, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, we've got a friendly organization at Skidmore that we work with, Dartmouth, uh, Baylor College. Is it Baylor University? Baylor University in Texas. We have a few different places that we, uh, that we also help out and they help us. But we're kind of the, the different model here. We are dealing with a faculty that is Honestly, I can only think at Hamilton College, and I know the college reasonably well, and I'm no longer a professor there, um, but the, the faculty, as I look across the hundred and some odd people who are there, there are exactly two people who are identified conservatives that will allow themselves to be known as conservatives. <coughs> one of them is Bob Paquette, and the other is Doug Ambrose, who is also one of our founding members. And Doug's still very quiet about it because he's still got 10 to 15 years left uh, before he retires. And I mean, there's just no stopping Bob Paquette from saying anything about anything. 
Um, but yeah, we are kind of like trying to provide a counterweight for the sort of ideological rigidity and orthodoxy that exists at this uh, institution. And don't get me wrong, I think that Hamilton College is a superb college. It really is. The education you get there is top flight. People like me, I mean, we're good teachers and we're interested in our students and it's a, it's a great place. But in terms of ideological diversity, it's practically non-existent. It really is. And so what we're trying to do is to help to provide some of that ideological diversity. And we have to do it in spite of, quite frankly, uh, significant resistance from the college, which does not like at all the fact that we exist. So I'll leave it at that. Great. Well, thank you all. We're going to now go into question and answer. Uh, it's pretty, uh, a pretty big group here today, so I'm, I was going to skip asking any of my own questions, but I do have one quick question for you, Chris, which is, how do you stock all three bars at your center? <laughs> well, amazingly, uh, the, the, when, the, uh, when the inn went into receivership, they left the bar downstairs, the storage room. We still have bottles and bottles of really cheap well booze that are <coughs> down there that we pull out on occasion. You know, uh, McCormick vodka never goes bad. Um, and we have the we have you know the the top shelf stuff that's sitting out. The, I have to say the the great sorrow in my life is that we have a walk-in uh, cooler and pressurized system for kegs of beer, which sadly our budget does not allow us uh, to to use. But aside from that, yeah. now I know what you keep in those dark corners you've been shoved it into. <laughs> that's right. Um, so that was actually my only question, unless I need to ask something else to spur people. Just a little bit about question answered. Um, uh, usually I, I ask just that you ask a question, uh, but if you have an experience with centers like this, or I think there's some students out there who might have a student perspective, try and keep your comments short, but I'd be interested, and I think others here might be interested to hear what those perspectives are. I will cut you off if you go on too long. Um, I should also point out that uh, our crack research assistant from the Center for Educational Freedom, Nate Pritchard, is over uh, in back there with a computer. If he raises his hand, he's got the Twitter questions, if we have any Twitter questions. Um, and other than that, I just ask that you wait for a microphone before you ask your question. And so, oh, and I guess I'll call on people and we'll start, I'll start with a student back there and then we have two microphones, we'll go with that man over there next. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Copeland, and I just graduated from college this past December. Uh, my college is actually merging with another college in the Atlanta area and is moving more towards a multi-campus, more online uh, forum for educating students. How, and this question is for anybody uh, who, uh, who is... Uh, who wants to field it? Um, how, how do you see that we can reach students via the online format with these kind of ideas in the future, especially since there's not necessarily a political presence that a, a teacher can implement their own sorts of biases into lectures? I guess one uh, I'll, I'll bring up, um, I'm f a little familiar with um, it. Ashbrook, the Ashbrook, Ashbrook, yeah, Ashbrook Center at uh, Ashland College in Ohio, they actually um, have a full online degree, master's degree program for high school history teachers. So some, I mean, it, it works just the same as anywhere else. Um, they also do things like uh, put. Um, 
oh, the 50 most important historical documents for the United in American history online so that anybody can go there. So it's pretty, I mean, if uh, these centers are not uh, um, backwards technically, so if it's being done by the general run of uh, academia, they can handle it just as well. Some of them have a little money trouble doing it, but... Uh, uh, Cato is in the process of <clears throat> investing millions of dollars in improving our online outreach for students and young adults. Uh, and one thing we hope to do long term is have courses that, in fact, can be taken for credit. And that's not the same thing as necessarily how you would get a degree, but uh, we have people like Jeff Myron, who is, uh, does our economics from Harvard, and he teaches a, a course on libertarian ideas, essentially, <clears throat> that we would love to put online someday. And I don't know that we can get credit from Harvard, but we might get credit somewhere else uh, with that kind of uh, that kind of course. So uh, it's outside the university system, but we we are working on that. Of course, the Institute for Humane Studies is doing a lot of work in that area, uh, also. So. Uh, my own feeling is that over time you're going to see a major move to online education because the economics are so much better and you can take one really good professor and spread their work over a much bigger base and it can be used, it can be properly done it's very it can be done in a socialized manner that students can have interface and and we're investing pretty heavily in that in our in that area at Cato and hope to be able to get some there are a couple universities that that will help you uh, get certification for your courses. Okay, that, that man up there. And then uh, I'll identify two people at a time. So we have a microphone ready to go. And then this, uh, I think, I don't know who is first. I'll go with that man right there. So he'll be next. Two brief questions. I've heard two groups of villains denounced. One was relativists and the other was dogmatic leftist. Isn't, are they the same, or are they two separate groups of villains? And my other question is, among, you claim that a lot of college students are left-wing or don't anti-capitalist, but if you were to ask most college students what is the best society on Earth today, would any sizable number really choose a Marxist nation. I, Mark, uh, there was a time when, when I was in college, you had a number of people holding little mouths, little red books. But I don't think there's any student, however liberal or left radical, that would today choose any Marxist society. I guess that's kind of pointed towards me. Um, yeah, rel the, the relativist world is generally the left wing. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, there's a pretty clear correspondence. Um, give me the second part again. Well, what, what happens is um, the relativism is towards um, um, the underlying foundation, you know, the underlying ways that your mind works. It's not necessarily like, 
you perceive all things equal. Um, and with this, it, because they, they, the underlying foundations are removed, um, it be, the values become what's important. Um, the values of the left are, uh, you know, uh, egalitarianism and against oppression and all this. Um, and so that is replacing, um, rather, the objectivity. Um, it's, it's not more um, that there's no under... It's not that um, capitalism is just as good as Marxism. That's not the relativism that's being discussed. It's being discussed about how we perceive things. Um, and, but in this system, you tend to have um, uh, people, the people doing this also have values of egalitarianism. And um, when there is no objectivity, values replace what's there. So um, it's, these people are, in fact, leftists. I, I, on the st student statistics, I just happened to hear a presentation yesterday, and I can't remember the number, but it's pretty stunning how many students who entered college after the financial crisis think socialism is better than capitalism. It's close to half. It's a very stunning number. They're not, they're not necessarily Marxists, but they do think socialism is somehow better. Uh, and, it, and, and the curve moved up dramatically around the financial crisis, which was, of course, the media attributed to a failure of capitalism. Having been a longtime banker, I actually am certain it was a failure of government policy, housing policy by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but that's not what the world sees. So we, there has been a big jump in students' view, and it's very different than older adults now. Much smaller, much higher portion of young students view socialism as, as superior to capitalism than adults. Uh, just uh, quickly, I recognize <clears throat> the irony, I mean, obviously, but I would... I would uh, I would come back by saying that I know plenty of post-structuralists who would be glad to say that the rule is that there are no rules, and they'll do it with a straight face. So, I mean, you can have a dogmatic relativist. They do exist. And, and generally, they are utterly uh, unaware of the irony of that position. So. And some are not. Uh, some, some are very uh, aware of it. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, to a rational mind, yes, there is a contradiction between moral relativism and dogmatic whateverism. Uh, but in in the mind of the, the the postmodern left over the course of the last thirty years, uh, moral relativism is not an end; it is a means to an end. And the end is uh, is a political ideological. Uh, kind of dogmatism. So moral relativism, which is connected to nihilism, uh, they are they are used uh, essentially to undermine to undercut the moral foundations. Generally speaking, of of the West, right? Uh, the goal of the New Left has always been to, um, to as they put it, uh, the long march through the institutions. And the way to undermine the institutions of the West was first through the doctrine of moral relativism. But none of them ever took that doctrine seriously as an end in itself. It is a means to an end, uh, and the end, uh, well, the end could either be uh, a kind of fascism or uh, dogmatic uh, socialism. <clears throat> 
It depends on who you talk to. I mean, it's not like there is a, this is not by any means a monolithic group. Faculties are hardly monolithic, but yeah, there's, yeah. where they're going is, it changes from person to person. That is true. Well, this has gotten very philosophical. Uh, we have this man next, and then the man in the far corner there. We can get the microphone ready for as soon as we finish answering him, we can go red a tat tat. Hi, my name is Jan Helfeld, and I interview politicians and journalists on public policy using the Socratic interviewing technique, and I reveal contradictions in their thinking. And I've noticed throughout the years, I've been doing this for many years, that our country uh, lacks institutionalized debating. And I'm, by debating, I mean real debating, where the debaters can interrogate with questions their opponent. And uh, to uh, solve this problem, I created the National Debate Association with many different formats and with an objective format where you can force a person to answer a question just like you do in a trial in a courtroom. By the way, I am an attorney by, uh, ori originally an attorney, I guess. So uh, I would like to cooperate with uh, any of you and anybody in the audience to uh, fill this lack that we have in our country where we don't have institutionalized debating, like compared to Great Britain where the prime minister has to get in there and, and argue and discuss it. It's not really my style of debating, but at least it's something. Obama doesn't have to debate with anybody. He does never debate with anybody, but he says he's in favor of debates. <laughs> he thinks it's great. So I'd like to uh, fill that void. And uh, my dream project, which I've been uh, thinking about, is having uh, congressmen, they're not too far away, come right here to Cato Institute and debate. And I would be willing to, on a volunteer basis, run that program. And, you know, we need to get more debates. Yeah. Even, and this is true about a lot of people on the left say the same thing. So let's get them together and uh, fight it out and see who's right. That, that's a, a really good point. And actually, I know talking earlier that in your centers, you try and actually get debates together. But is, is that right? Absolutely. And that's what really brings people out? Yeah, it, it certainly tends to. Yeah, one of the formulas for success at the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism is uh, we, we sponsor debates uh, with some regularity. And I can promise you, students love debates a lot more than they love lectures. Uh, and every time we've, we've sponsored a lecture, or I'm sorry, a debate at Clemson, it has always been uh, wildly successful, um, and the students love it. Okay, uh, there in the opposite corner, and then... Uh, hi. hi, Christopher Gray, uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute. I would just like to address this question to both Professor Thompson and Professor Hill. Um, it relates to everybody, but they have specific knowledge of it because they were trained like I was as old-fashioned intellectual historians. You all have to understand, historians of ideas now are treated the way gays were treated in the 1930s. <laughs> I, instead of saying capitalism and one of my teachers, Kenneth Lynn, was a fan of Schumpeter and took him, took him at, at Harvard. How about saying civil society, as the Scottish Enlightenment theorists identified it? Because you need civil society 
You need those conditions to make capitalism possible. And it's a way to, to get a lot of Burkeans, a lot of soft-headed Catholic liberals, I'm a Catholic conservative, on your side. And one uh, comment on Doug Ambrose. His wife brought Elizabeth Genovese into the Catholic Church and helped bring uh, Eugene back. He is bitterly hated. He's probably getting death threats from uh, Gene and Betsy's many communist comrades. So that's probably why he's keeping his head down. <laughs> Yeah, even up there in the in the far great white north. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, they had uh, uh, Gene and Betsy's dogs living in them in their house after after they passed away. But yeah, it's wonderful. Um, to your point, one of the things that I've found actually until I read Jay's uh, article, one of the things I've always found kind of troubling about the mission statement of the AHI is that it is for you know one of the things specifically is for the study of capitalism. And it's always kind of struck me as being a, an example of semantic infiltration, where you know you're using their terms to describe your thing, which is kind of an annoying thing. But at the same time, you know, after reading this and and the morality of capitalism and, and this idea, I'm kind of maybe changing my mind a little bit on that. I would have chosen the the phrase market economics if it had been down to me, because I think that's a more inclusive way of looking at at what it is that our system does. It's Capitalism has a, it, ha, it has some unfortunate ringing to it. You know, it's not a happy phrase. Uh, but now I'm kind of changing my tune because of the way that that, that my colleagues here are, are addressing this. So, yeah, and uh, you know, we do the moral foundations of capitalism, which means, uh, in large part, we study uh, the, uh, civil society. Uh, the nature of civil society. Uh, and um, for instance, one of the things I've become very interested in personally myself in the last year and a half, uh, for instance, a subject which is utterly neglected, uh, in my view, in the, cons in the certainly in the libertarian and objectivist worlds, but even in the conservative world. And that is uh, the role, for instance, that marriage and family plays uh, in a free society. Uh, I think this is an important subject that needs to uh, further uh, uh, exploration. But I can also tell you that uh, 10 years ago, when we were first starting uh, the Clemson Institute, when we were just the Clemson uh, Capitalism Initiative, uh, I put together a list of probably 100 potential names for what would become the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. And all those names had things like civil, you know, the study for civil society, study of free markets, study of private property order, all these sort of euphemisms which kind of evaded what we decided we were really all about. And we decided that you know, there was, it was part of this idea of not being shunted to some dark corner of the university. We were going to raise the Jolly Roger. Right? And we were not going we to run away from the term capitalism in the way that so many conservatives and libertarians have. We were, we were, um, we were going to raise that Jolly Roger, and we were going to engage, even though it is, of course, a term that has its origins uh, uh, on the left in Marx, uh, you know, there, there was a time when the, the great battle in the West uh, during the Cold War was the battle between capitalism and socialism, right? And, um, but a lot of defenders of capitalism stopped using that term. And, and so we made a very conscious decision that we were gonna, we were gonna 
be about capitalism and we were, uh, we were going to uh, give it uh, the moral defense, we were going to try to give it, I should say, the moral defense that it's uh, so rarely ever had. Okay, so we have the man right up here and then after that, this man over here. And then I'll, I promise I'll work my way to the center. So we'll be ready for that, that guy next. Ken Dillon, I'm a former academic history teacher and I have taught plenty of Western Civ. <laughs> uh, I'm also a moderate Democrat. And I don't ascribe to all of the views of the Cato Institute although I enjoy coming to your seminars. Uh, but I think there's a story there that, that is important, that you have potential allies whom you could reach out to, people like me, who don't have uh, the slightest sympathy with political correctness in the universities. And, and I know that's a big problem in history departments, for, in, for instance, in the hiring and, and, and in the way courses are designed. Uh, but that doesn't make me a libertarian or a conservative. I'm a moderate Democrat. And in my classes, every student had to participate during the course of a semester in a debate. And the students generally liked it. Some of them hated it because they weren't used to it and they felt put on the spot. Uh, and this, I can report my students were from all over the world. And uh, I would say, 100% of them were keenly interested in studying Western civilization. So at the student level, there, there's no problem at all. At any rate, the, the, basic, the basic message that I would like to say is you have potential allies. Yeah, it's, it seems sometimes strange to me that, that even the phrase Western civilization, and this is something I think that's just been happening among graduate students coming into the profession, even the phrase Western civilization seems to be freighted and evil among academics. It's bizarre. How, how else do you describe this? You know, well, it's not, they always they want to put civilization in quotations. You know, all of, my, all of my lefty buddies on Facebook, if I ever say anything like that, they always have to, Western civilization. You know, it's, a, it's kind, of, kind of goofball. Uh, I'd also say that uh, in the first two or three years, at least two, possibly three years, um, the heads of uh, college Democrats were members of the AHI undergraduate fellows. You bet we're reaching across the aisle. We want to have the debate. That's the thing. It's just that the debate isn't happening on the campus. So we've got to bring the debate to where it is. So yes, we've been, from the, from the get-go, we've been trying to solicit as many people on the other side of the fence as we could. Yeah, and that's a very nice point. It seems to me that decent and honorable men and women can find, uh, despite differences in political ideology, can find certain common issues uh, to, to talk about. Um, and whether in the end they agree or disagree, they can have those kinds of conversations. And I can tell you, just in the last week at Clemson, um, we've had a bit of a small controversy where 110 uh, faculty uh, published a petition uh, demanding the criminal prosecution of free speech. Um, to, to, to which uh, I took out a full-page ad in the student newspaper um, titled An Open Letter to Clemson Students uh, in, in which uh, I made as strong a case as I possibly could for uh, freedom of speech in a marketplace of ideas. And I was able to get uh, colleagues uh, from across the political spectrum uh, to sign that letter uh, with me. 
Um, and I think it's important for, for all of us, right, uh, as our default position, to always try to find uh, issues uh, that, that, uh, that we share in common with people who we assume don't share most of our political positions. That should always be the default position. Find that one area uh, of, of agreement that, that you share in common with people and let that be the beginning point. One of my, or my newest project is working on academic freedom. And one of the amazing things is you, there are supporters of academic freedom all across the spectrum uh, from uh, Stanley Fish, uh, the, the, who is a very liberal uh, English and law professor, um, all the way to the conservative side. Russell Kirk was a big one. And every, every grade in between. And these are the people, yes, they, this is one of the, I unfortunately am not knowledgeable enough to have brought this out earlier, but there is that middle ground of where we want to keep this, we want to keep the free speech, we want to keep the academic freedom. And um, so there is a whole lot of ability to have synergy in, yes, let's keep that open. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, that man and then uh, this lady here is next. She had her hand up, and then we'll get you after that. Gordon Johnson. I'm a retired businessman making equipment for the printing industry, a manufacturer. And I'd like to go back to your original comments about the fact that we spend the computer modelers think they can solve all our problems. And perhaps the people in the middle of the road without PhDs can make good decisions. My question, are we shooting ourselves in the foot when we concentrate on freedom to choose, uh, patient choice or parent choice, whatever we want to talk about, and are economists really uh, ignoring Hayek, if you will, that we have to be gardeners and not, uh, because gardeners are not computer modelers. I'm a supply side, and I never concentrated on price to sell against my competitors. We always concentrated on making our machines better. Now, why don't they teach the supply side of economics rather than the demand side? Demand side fits good computer models, but the supply side is innovation. I asked Peter Betke on living economics why he didn't have innovation in the index of his book this price is indexed 25 times, but innovation's not in the index. Why are we unable to convince people that it isn't the demand side that produces innovation? Customers don't innovate anything. All of the innovations that have made our country what it is come from the supply side, and why do economists ignore that? Um, part of it is... Um the academic world has just been very gradually moving in that direction. Um, when graduate students in economics uh, produce their dissertations, it has to be filled with, you know, econometric models, differential equations, charts and graphs. They're trying, and so this way of thinking has like kind of organically worked its way into the discipline. Another thing is policy people like to have simple formulas that they can, or not simple, but things that they can show, if we do this, this will happen. And so they, they have this belief that 
their theories will be able to work every time. Plus, if you think about it, um, the idea that uh, um, somebody makes a decision and somebody in the government makes a decision and this happens is much easier for a lot of people than the idea of the, uh, what it, the invisible guiding hand that you know, billions of independent little decisions are actually more efficient than some person saying, let's do this. So there's a lot of, I think one of the reasons is it's simpler. <laughs> you know, and rather than thinking deeply and sometimes thinking deeply requires throwing away the mathematics and reading the difficult texts. Um, so I hope that helps. I, I, I agree with you that entrepreneurship drives it all. Innovation, creativity is the source of all human progress. It's almost by definition, right? Unless somebody does something better, there can't be any progress. That's not what academics want to hear, though. First, we won't need most of them, right? <laughs> if they're not entrepreneurs, they're not innovators. And second, they like to have command and control. So they philosophically are opposed to the Hayekian model because it threatens their role in the universe where they want to tell us all what to do because they know what's good for us. If markets, if entrepreneurs and, and, and individual freedom solves those problems, their whole system collapses. Their whole worldview collapses. What they've been educated on their whole year to get the whole time to get a PhD collapses. So that's a pretty big threat. <laughs> they don't, you know, they'll they'll pay lip service. They have you know these social entrepreneurship, whatever the heck that is. I'm not sure. Uh, they have they they pay lip service, but they don't really want entrepreneurs. Uh, and and having spent a couple years in the academy, it is the least entrepreneurial world I've ever been in. It is, it's a minus 10 on an entrepreneurial scale, which is ironic because you think of universities as supposed to be innovative and creative, but they're absolutely opposed to innovation and creativity. You have to fight like heck to get any kind of change. Well, when I was at a, in the public policy school getting a PhD, they talked about policy entrepreneurs, and those were people who thought of new ways for the government to get your money and control your life. So <laughs> there is entrepreneurship. And, and so next is that lady over, over there. She's standing up now, and then that man over there will be after her. Thank you. I'd like to ask Bradley Thompson uh, for something I'm sure he can supply, a, a synopsis of the approach of uh, your institute, uh, the uh, the mission and the agenda that uh, we, would be a takeaway or we could get it on the internet to um, quickly be able to summarize and then perhaps uh, market to uh, some innovators in town uh, the approach you're talking about. I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I fully understand what you're. Well, just a description of the work and the approach that the institute oh, takes, speak. and uh, some, yeah, including examples of pers persons who have practiced this uh, entrepreneurship and so on. Right. So I think what makes our academic program and certainly this uh, new Lyceum program that we're starting. Uh, is that it, it, it is a combination of a great books approach to education plus, the, with, as its theme, the exploration of the moral, political, and economic foundations uh, of, of a free society. So in the academic program, uh, certainly of our Lyceum program, 
begins with a kind of historical examination of the origins and, and rise of a free society over the course of the last four or five hundred years. Um, but we mostly do it, uh, we are kind of old-fashioned intellectual historians in, in that uh, at the core of what we do is a kind of a great books approach, which, and I believe me, um, I'm as big a fan of technological innovation and entrepreneurship as there is of anyone sitting in this room. But I also confess to you that I have a certain re reluctance uh, and, and worry about it in that um, when asked you know, what I teach, uh, I don't say political science or political philosophy. I most often say old books. And in the teaching of old books, and you know, when I say old books, I mean, I, you know, my, my, my books are literally falling apart, right? <laughs> They're held together by, um, by tape or by an elastic band or something. When you, know, when you take it off, they essentially fall apart. That's, that's to me, <clears throat> what really constitutes an education uh, is when I'm sitting at, uh, at my desk in my office with, a, with, a, with a, a young person sitting across from me with their copy of... Uh, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments open in front of them, and I've got my copy open in front of me, and both copies are marked up and underlined with marginalia. The real intellectual experience for me, the formative intellectual experience, is when we read that text out loud to each other, stop after a paragraph and talk about it, and have a 10-minute, 15-minute uh, conversation with each other uh, about, about the ideas contained in Adam Smith's book. And how one actually packages uh, that approach to education and makes it transferable uh, to, you know, to the World Wide Web, I'm not really, you know, I haven't figured that part, that question out yet. Um, so it, it's, um, there is a sense in which what we're doing at, at Clemson uh, does harken back, as I said you know, at the beginning, to a, a kind of education that we haven't seen in this country for over 150, 160 uh, years, which is a kind of one-on-one -on -one personal intellectual relationship between one mind and another mind. Uh, and uh, how we bring that to the whole world, uh, I haven't figured out yet. Okay, this, uh, well, that man over there, and then you'll go next. Hi, Connor Gibson. Um, I'm curious, this seems like a very, um, self-complementary network, hearing about the different schools and institutions you're talking about. You have somebody like uh, in the position that Mr. Allison used to be in saying, I want to make the case from the morality of capitalism. Here's a grant. What can you do? What opportunities do the professors um, that are part of these institutes have to network together? I'm familiar with, say, the Association of Private Enterprise Education, but how are ideas shared? How, are, how is success shared? Right. I... Um, I'll, I'll go... F um... Brad has a, a conference annually with 90 professors going down there, many of them who were funded by the uh, BB&T. Um, we had a conference at, is it Johnson & Wales? Yes. Um, yeah, we had a conference um, uh, for various uh, free market centers um, over the summer. Um, I know that at uh, Chris's, Chris networks consistently, his organization networks consistently with uh, centers at Skidmore, uh, Colgate, Rochester, um, Baylor University. Um, they're, 
the Jack Miller Center, which um, has this unique position where they try to match donors with professors, with universities, and um, they started something called the Chicago Initiative, in which they funded about, uh, I think it's up to 11 different centers, all right within the Chicago area. And the very idea was for them to work together and network so that they could uh, um, do things together. So there's, there's actually a great deal of that going. I mean, everybody's doing that. All right, uh, we've got Roger Pilon. Yes, I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Um, I've got not so much uh, a question as a comment that I'd like you to uh, uh, respond to. Um, the discussion has been focused upon creating institutions and trying to insinuate them into campuses. And we've seen that that's been successful in some cases where the university is amenable to it, and in other cases it is not. Um, and in fact, um, when you look at uh, the elite universities, especially of the Northeast, this is where you especially run into this problem. Uh, in my uh, wife's and my case, the University of Chicago, our alma mater, we recall just recently the attempt to set up the Milton Friedman Center at the University of Chicago raised a brouhaha, and only when it was the Gary Becker uh, Milton Friedman Center was it able to get going. But there is another model and, and that's the one I want to invite you to respond to. And that's where you, it's, it's the, the Federalist Society model, where you set up student chapters in each of the law schools around the country. And that's the way you insinuate the ideas that are otherwise not uh, to be found at the law schools. It seems to me that that is an alternative that maybe at the Pope uh, uh, Center and so forth, you might want to think about how you could uh, work that model as well as a way to get into these universities. Because now there are uh, just flourishing chapters, 300 strong at the Harvard Law School. You find at the Yale Law School, Stanford, all these elite universities now have alternative ideas that have been insinuated, not because an institution was created on the outside, but because students' groups were created from the inside. Yeah, Roger, I think the Federal Society is a great model, and they've been very successful. There actually is a similar model that's been started up. I think it's called the Adam Smith Institute, not the one in the UK, that is targeted graduate business schools. And I've spoken a number of times under their banner. Um, I think it's an excellent idea. I find that undergraduates are more open to really morality-based ideas. You know, law is more law. You know, it's, it's more of a, it, there is an ethics underlying it, but it's, it's kind of an American tradition. I find that in graduate, I taught both undergraduate and graduate business schools. By the time a lot of people get to graduate business schools, one thing, they've been out in business five or 10 years, they're not too interested <laughs> in the conversation. You know, you can defend uh, capitalism more from a pragmatic perspective with that group. It's just a little harder to move them to get interested in the underlying ideas because they're basically, in many cases, trying to get another promotion or a new job. So it's, it's an interesting, I'd rather talk to the Federalist Society than I went to graduate business schools about the kind of philosophical stuff that we're trying to talk about. Uh, they do get, in graduate business schools, some defense of capitalism in a pragmatic manner. They just aren't able to defend it in an ethical manner. 
So it, it's not a bad, it's a great idea, but I don't, I haven't found the, the graduate business school experience as rewarding. I'd rather talk to undergraduates. Uh, I, would, I would also say that, again, looking at law schools, you have a, a very self-selective kind of group of people who are going to be receptive to that idea. And there are always going to be, I mean, even, even though law schools, I think, as a legal historian, I notice a leftward shift in the way that law is taught, the sorts of papers that are produced by law schools. I mean, it's a, it's a different ground than it was 25 or 30 years ago. It's a, something I actually wrote about in my novel. I mean, this is, a, this is obvious. Uh, but even with that, there are a few places where you will find conservative professors. There's always going to be one or two. Usually in an economics department, there will be one. It's almost astounding that you can find so many that don't have them. Hamilton College now has its, its lone market economist has now, you know, he's now retired. So, I mean, the, the Hamilton College economics department, which used to produce all of these guys for Wall Street, now they're all coming out of the math department, but that's another story. Um, that, that you don't find, you know, market economists anymore. What I'm saying is that for what we are doing, we need to find one professor, as, as, the, Lord, as the Lord said to, uh, who was it who had to go find the one good man, if I can find just one good man, right? Um, it's difficult for us to find the one good person on a college campus who, to lead this sort of thing, to get this ball rolling. And undergraduates, generally speaking, I mean, with, with all the love that I have for them, are, are kind of clueless about that sort of thing. It takes a particular kind of undergraduate to, to reach out to other, you know, to even find this kind of thing. That's, they're not yet at the place where they can begin to do this. So, yeah. The one, I would say, I, I'd like to add that there, that model is kind of working, um, and I'm, I'm really bad at remembering the names, but there are the, the um, like there are libertarian groups of libertarian colleges nationally. Student for Liberty. Well, Students for Liberty is in it. Yes, there are things like that that are that seem more like the Federalist Society, where um, they're sort of student organized and they have chapters throughout different. And that that seems to be more that model. Yeah, and so so that that is that is kind of. Um, I mean, it is out there working already. So yeah, throw that. Out part here. of what we do is to introduce students to these sorts of things. I mean, to let them know that they're out there because a lot of times they just don't. Right. So I think clearly a multi-pronged approach is is necessary. So you've got now the creation of all of these centers and institutes uh, at scores of universities around the country. That's good, uh, but it's not enough. We need Federalist Societies. We need Adam Smith Societies. That's good, but not enough. Uh, we need the presence of Young Americans for Liberty, Students for Liberty, uh, students, uh, conservative student organizations influenced by ISI, by IHS. They're providing curricula and videos uh, which uh, are helping. But the one thing that we haven't talked about, for instance, uh, is the creation of new colleges. Uh, which uh, a number of us have been talking about for, for a very long time, and there have been one or two attempts to do that, uh, which have been almost entirely unsuccessful for a variety of different reasons. But I had dinner uh, two weeks ago with a young man, probably in his uh, mid to late 30s, uh, who is right now in the process of trying to start a new college uh, in, in Savannah, Georgia. And he's got an all-star lineup of people supporting it, the one thing he doesn't have is money, right? And which then raises the issue that we haven't talked about at all, the money problem. 
Uh, and I can tell you from my perspective and in my experience, um, this, this is the single greatest challenge that I have, which is to persuade men and women of, of uh, wealth, philanthropic wealth, uh, to understand that politics is not the solution to the long-term problems of this country, right? And I, I, I meet too many very smart businessmen and women, you know, who are giving millions of dollars every year uh, to uh, political candidates. Uh, and I have to ask the question, how's that worked out for you? <laughs> right? And the answer has to be, it hasn't worked out very well at all. And therefore, um, you know, I think we need, to, we need to be able to persuade more businessmen and women uh, the very simple axiom principle that ideas have consequences and that if they really want to change the culture long term in this country, it's not going to happen uh, through politics. Po if you think the political system is corrupt, what you're really saying is that the American people are corrupt. And if you're saying the American people are corrupt, then what you have to do, of course, is to change American culture. And the way you change the culture is through ideas, in particular through K through 12 education and through the universities. But if we're giving, if we're giving tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars to political campaigns, and we're giving, you know, one one tenth of one percent to trying to change the intellectual culture of this nation, you are by definition going to lose. Well, I think that is a great point to end on, plus. <laughs> uh, I want to thank our panelists uh, for being here today. I want to thank everybody for coming. And then the good news is, uh, well, I'll start with the bad news. It's probably not as well stocked as the Alexander Hamilton <laughs> Institute, but we are having a reception. And in the winter garden after this. So um, if we run out of uh, alcohol, we'll, we'll call your people. We go ahead north. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.